0: Hey, welcome to night school, Memorial Day. And I have no Memorial Day commentary to offer. Other than I'm thinking about it a little bit, I guess I do have a little commentary. I am conscious of the fact that this is a day to think about people who died in service, you know, and that includes, it's not just the, the warriors, it's anybody who died while they were in service, in military service, and I think just thinking about that fact alone is all you need to do today. Because I don't, I can't think of anybody that I personally know who died in service. There was a, a kid I went to high school with whose older brother died in Iraq while I was in high school, but I didn't, I didn't really know the brother or anything. Something, something to be conscious of. You don't have to have any false reverence anything like that, but just think about that fact alone and how ancient that is. I think that's something to think about today is how ancient that is, the idea of dying in some sort of military service, even if even if it wasn't in warfare because I think today includes even people who just happened to die, happened to be killed. I don't know if, if, if you were a you know if you were a, a soldier and you happened to drive off the road and, and pass away. That way. I don't know if today includes that, but I believe it does. I believe it includes anybody who simply passed away while they were in service. But what I actually wanted to talk about today is a book that I have been reading gradually over the last couple years called Soul of the North. And I'm sure I've mentioned it before. My sister got it for me a couple Christmases ago. It's called Soul of the North by Neil Kent, and it's a big book, physically big, not not particularly thick. But it's, you know, you know, like 12 inches high by whatever, 7 inches wide, I don't know. It's like a history book. It is, it, it's very much like a, a history book you would read in school, but it's about Scandinavian history. And I, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what Scandinavia is and how it developed and why it is the way it is. But this book gets into a lot of details that... I learned a lot from. I learned a lot from the details that this book provides, and I didn't absorb as much as I would like. You know, I wouldn't be able to recite all of the dates and facts and which king succeeded this king and, you know, when Sweden, re, you know, regained its autonomy from the kingdom of Denmark and whatever it was. But in general, I learned a lot from reading this, and I just finished it recently, and The one thing I took from it, though, and I feel like this book was very objective, too, but we always hear people who are proponents of socialism in the U.S. particularly always say, look at Sweden. Look at what Sweden's doing. Look at Sweden's healthcare system. You know, people tend to say that, and it's a good point. You know, Sweden does seem to have something figured out, but it's very revisionist to call it socialism. It's very revisionist to try to apply these terms that developed later, these political ideologies that developed later, to apply those to Sweden, where many of the modern programs we see in Sweden developed gradually over time through circumstance. And we can see where this book points this out, and this isn't a new book, I believe this book came out some time ago, but one... And the book's the book doesn't make it a point to try to it, the book is, doesn't make any statements. It's just explaining a history. You know, it's a very objective book. But as it points out, you know, some of these, you know, what are now national programs developed in response to circumstances at the time. For example, plague and pestilence. You know, the modern Swedish healthcare system developed in a in very in a very primitive form because of that it was a response to that and it predates words or ideas like socialism communism any of that so to apply those words to the to these programs now is very revisionist and not just revisionist it seems blatantly manipulative to me and it also it, it, people who Proponents of socialism also have this tendency to to think that those ideas are somehow new or that Karl Marx was somehow that he was somehow riffing on something that nobody had ever considered that nobody had ever applied when in reality what's now called socialism is what tribes naturally do It's what families naturally do. It's what clans naturally do. And it makes sense. You know, families take care of each other. And what's an extension of a family? A clan. It's a group that is largely intermarried. You know, it's not just the nuclear four person family in the same home. It's a group, but there's intermarriage. They're woven together by blood and intermarriage. And just think about that for a second. You think, You know, your sister or your brother marries somebody. You have a brother-in-law and a sister-in-law, and now you consider them family. They're close. And they're not your blood, but they're close. And then they have a kid with your sibling, and then that kid has your blood. So that clan system brings people together. It weaves people together, first through marriage and then through blood. And then you think about a tribe, and a tribe is going to be mostly interrelated in some way. And I'm not trying to get into some Russian nesting doll sort of diagram where it's like, first you got a person, then you got a family, and then that fits into the clan, and then the clan fits into the tribe, although maybe it does work that way, I don't know. Uh, but you can see where you know these things, people are woven together and their interests become shared, and they help each other. They give each other some stability and support. And through that, there is the greater goal of survival because their individual survival depends on the collective survival and not just physical, you know, not dying. By, by survival, I don't mean just not dying. I mean their entire well-being depends on the group, their mental and physical health. Uh, just their their contentment their ability to to just live their life depends on that group and so it's not like it's insane when people look back and say oh it's socialism a family but it, it is that ridiculous you know it's it's not that the idea doesn't have it's not it's not that it's not that there isn't an analogy there or a comparison it's not that people are insane for saying these things have Something in common with socialism But to me, when people look at Sweden And say, look at their socialist programs That's like Looking at a family and saying Oh look, they're socialists Because dad and mom earn money And cook food For their children And take their kids to the doctor They're obviously socialists They're socialists And And that's what we tend to do that's it's a revisionist attitude it's like no that's what a family does and by extension that's what a tribe does that's what a clan does and it's a lot easier to do that when you do have links and not just blood links not just not just that interwoven sort of clan um not just the shared goals of a clan you know it's it's also um I don't know what I'm getting at there, but it's just it's it's this very revisionist attitude to try to, to try to say that a family, because they all work together, somehow is a an example of socialism. And of course, in modern day Sweden, the government is involved, you know, and and maybe maybe everybody in Sweden would would disagree with me and say, no, 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 we have we have a socialist program. But there was a a point in this book where it just it hit me; it was, it was a light bulb moment where. It's just so clear that the reason these the reason these familial, tribal, clannish, which is it's funny, clannish is considered sort of a, a pejorative. They're clannish. They keep to themselves. But I think clannish can also be a, a positive thing. Uh but but it's funny how you know there was a point though where these sort of Much more basic, simple, familial approaches to collective well being were applied on a national level. And nowadays you could call that socialism, but to say that it has roots in socialism would be completely wrong. And I believe the reason why these so called socialist programs work in Sweden, and not to say they're perfect, not to say they're perfect Because we tend to look at it that way too We tend to look at Sweden from afar And say and, and we act like it's they have the perfect system Oh, they figured out the perfect system over there And that's not true either And I don't know what it's like I have friends there I have relatives there I have cousins And some people that I consider close friends Who I've never even met I've never even personally met I have a dear friend there uh, And uh... You know, but I've learned a lot through conversation with them and through their wisdom. I've learned that oh, things aren't perfect there. You know, I've had Swede- I've lived with Swedes. You know, I had an exchange student. I, some close friends of mine had a number of Swedish exchange students. So, while I wouldn't consider myself a first-hand expert, you know, I've picked up on a, th- a thing or two. And, and so, I wouldn't say the system over there is perfect. But outsiders here, especially outsiders with an agenda, which What's worse than that? <laughs> an outsider with an agenda. Uh, they have a tendency to look at Sweden and, and almost discuss it like they have. They figured it out, guys. In all these years of human history and struggle and conflict and ups and downs, rising and falling, oh, somebody's figured it out. No, they, nobody's figured it out. But we do see where something is working there. And I I, you know, I actually think some of the programs Sweden has going on, I wish we could apply them here, but why can't we? Why are we in why can't we even get close to that here? And I believe one reason is that there are too many different interest groups here and we are too divided in the United States. In Sweden you think people have been there for eons the people who are living in sweden now, you know, not including immigrants, but many of the people who live in sweden now, their families have been there forever. they trace back to the days when they were simply tribes, when you know, there were simply clans, there were people just surviving, just surviving together. and they've been there forever, and that's important to consider that they've they've had a long time to congeal and not to say everybody agrees we know we know there's a lot of disagreement over there uh, especially politically socially there's people who disagree there but they've had a long time to kind of gel together since early on and there's it's also a very homogenous place it's racially racially and ethnically homogenous and they've had a lot of immigration in recent decades recent years even and this isn't me. I'm not on an anti-immigration kick or anything like that. Even though this is a hyper-nationalist show now, uh, I'm not on an anti-immigration kick. And I don't I don't have a problem with immigration. I really don't. And my family... I, I come from an immigrant family myself, obviously. I'm not Native American. Um, but I come from an immigrant family myself, European immigrants. And... You know, I don't I don't come from a colonist background. None of my relatives that I know of that we that I can trace are were colonists. We weren't the first people to come over here and colonize and brutalize the natives. But we were immigrants. And my Scandinavian immigrants, you know, they came over a little bit later. Or my, my Scandinavian relatives came over a little bit later. But when you look at Sweden and, and why their so-called socialist programs work. There is a lot more, they're, they're much more homogeneous. They're much more closer together. They have a deeper shared history, if nothing else. That shared history is there. And we don't have that here. Our country is relatively new. So the American identity itself is something very new. It is very new. And no matter what people called Sweden, no matter what names they put on it, the fact is, their blood is in that soil. They have been there. Ours is not. You know, we live somewhere for 20 years, and we feel like it's, we, it's, it's just a part of me. I've lived, in, I've lived in Olympia, Washington for 15 years, and I feel like a part of me is here. Imagine if your family had lived in the same place, on the same piece of land you know, going back before recorded history. Imagine that. Imagine what that does to you. So that that level of shared history, when you have a lot of people like that, and when you have that shared history, you have a lot of people who have been struggling together for a very long time, who have had common interests for a very long time. And you could say, oh, well, if these people have been part of this land going back before recorded history. They've also competed over resources, that too. But at some point, you know, these ideas make sense in the same way that, you know, your dad doesn't come home and say, oh, well, I worked for this. I worked for this. So I'm going to eat all the the steak myself. Although you do see that. You do see where, like, someone like the classic, like, you know, the patriarch of a family is like, I worked for this So what I say goes. But at the same time, you know, you'd have to be an absolute freak if you're a father of a family to say, you get your own food. Get your own food. It's kind of an idle threat you'd give to your children if they're misbehaving. Well, I guess you're not eating dinner tonight, but it's an idle threat. You know, you'd have to be a psychopath to starve your family while you gorge on food. Um... But when you look at Sweden and, you know, the way this, this all developed, it's there's this shared history and it's homogenous. People understand that. There is this collective identity and that's what any so-called socialist program requires in order to function. It requires people to to see each other's common interests and to feel like you are one. Because one of the big issues with the U.S. is that we are so divided if it's not, Race, if it's not gender, if it's not one thing or another, it's your political leanings. And even if you vote the same way as someone else, they will split hairs with you over some minor disagreement about a certain policy. You know, you might agree with somebody about gay marriage, but you say have a slightly different opinion on gun control. And guess what? Divided, you know, guess what? You're no longer on the same page. So in the U.S., we, we haven't been here nearly as long, you know, us immigrants. We haven't been here nearly as long, and we are different. We are racially and ethnically different. And there's beauty to that, too. You know, it's not like I think, oh, you know, we need to be a much more racially and ethnically homogenous country. Otherwise, we'll never have socialist health care. You know, I don't think that my goal isn't necessarily socialized healthcare. I want us to get to a point where we can pool our resources in some way. And we do. We, of course, do. But, you know, I want to reach a point where we can help as many people as we possibly can with the least amount of burden on each individual person. And that should be everybody's goal. That is how we survive, but the problem is we don't have a, a real American identity together. And so much of what we do is, even the people who are proud to be Americans, like me, there's still this tendency to criticize the other Americans who don't perfectly agree with us, who don't perfectly align with us, who don't look like us. And how do you develop some form of socialized health care, or really any social program, when you feel so different from everybody? And if it's not the way you look, it's the way you think, it's what you value. And the reality is we all value the same things: Survival, we want to eat. You know, we want to enjoy life to some extent. Some people more than others. Some people don't want to enjoy life, but... Uh, You know, that's that's another topic. And I think we cover that a lot on here. Um, But so there's not people aren't on the same team at all, because these sorts of programs really do require people to recognize their common interests and to join the same team, even just for a limited purpose. You don't have to be on the same team all the time, but you have to understand that we are on the same team when it comes to certain aspects of our, our existence. You know, in the same way that you're not... Just because you're part of a family, just because you're part of a nuclear family, doesn't mean that you need to like everything that your family likes or agree with them on everything. But you have to understand that there are certain foundations to that relationship, and those foundations are survival, general well-being. And that's what makes a family whole. It's not the fact that, you know, brother and sister, you know... Like the same brother and sister, like your brother's favorite Harry Potter book is this one, and your sister's favorite Harry Potter book is that one. I guess we shouldn't eat dinner together. It's like, no, of course not. You know, there's a foundation that you all agree on, and you can like different Harry Potter books. Hell, dad doesn't even like Harry Potter. Dad doesn't even like Harry Potter. I'm not going to eat his food. I'm not going to eat the food he provides. You know, it's like you could split hairs about all that kind of shit. And, you know, when you look at the divisiveness in America, it really does seem that absurd to me. It really does seem as simple to me. When I see two people disagreeing, two people who live ultimately very similar lives, they might watch different TV shows, they might, you know, they might have different interests, different ideas about you know, what's right and what's wrong or what what direction the world needs to head in. But when I look at the way people are arguing, I honestly feel like I'm looking at two Harry Potter fans arguing about wh- which book has the best story or even which character is their favorite or something. You know, it does seem that silly to me at this point. And they don't see how much they actually have in common. But it's a lot harder, harder to do when there's a lot of superficial difference, when there's... You know, especially the deeper you get into subculture and you get into these nuanced interests and these ideas about what makes you you. And as much as I am a proponent of individualism, I believe that you pursue your individual interests and you focus on your individual interests so that you can better understand why the collective exists. You can better understand what your role is in the collective, and there's this tendency, though, with other people to start out from the collective level, to be like, you know, we, we look at it from, rather than working from the smallest component up, we have a tendency to start at the top, the largest possible component, and work back down. And I don't, I don't think that works. I don't think that works on a personal level. I don't think that works for a country. I don't think that works politically politically. Because when you focus on yourself as an individual, you realize that the same things that make your life better, the same things that improve your own individual, even self-centered place in this world, are actually the same things that the group needs. But it takes individuals coming to some degree of realization about themselves, and it gets into words like individuation, and Carl Jung you know, talked a lot about this, many people do. I mean, a lot of self-help even. It's, it, a lot of people have made this same discovery, and it plays into the as-above-so-below idea. That the same processes that benefit you individually are the same processes that benefit the whole. And when you go through certain processes as an individual, those benefit the whole. Very rarely do they actually take away. And I'm not talking about making a lot of money. I'm not talking about your own pursuit of happiness. I'm talking about the foundations of your individual existence. And I feel like a lot on this show, I talk a lot about that, so I don't need to go into detail. A lot of this show is about figuring out your what matters to you as a person. Because we're always searching, you know, and, and very rarely do we realize that we already have what we need. We just need to work it out a little more, but uh there there's this tendency though to 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 think that Sweden is the same as the US in terms of its racial and ethnic makeup like that is an important factor it's not uh, it's not that the US needs to be more racially homogenous i mean that's out the window even if you wanted that it's ridiculous like these white nationalists it's it's absurd you know like like what's your fantasy What is your fantasy? And it's strange to me, though, too, because you even look at Russia. And and I mean, one reason why I'm so resistant to socialism and communism, and you'll see people who are on the left and not even the far left, not even full-blown socialists will say, well, socialism isn't the same thing as communism, and they're right. They are right, but they get very offended and they will belittle people and call them stupid when people paint socialism with the same brush as communism. But yet that same person who will belittle someone for, you know, equating socialism with communism will turn around and call a libertarian a fascist. You know what I mean? Where or or even because I mean that's that's really ridiculous. I mean, we can if you if you have any idea what those ideas are, and I'm certainly not a libertarian. You know, maybe if I eat a maybe if I eat a banana before bed, the next day I'll wake up and I'll have like one libertarian thought. But if I eat like almonds that night, I'll wake up and I'll have like a socialist thought the next day. You know, my my opinions and feelings on things fluctuate. And for that matter, and even when my ideas and opinions are consistent, maybe I have a certain idea that is a little bit—somebody might classify as libertarian, whereas I have another idea that somebody might see as socialist. And personally, you know, I do think we need social programs. I do think we need some sort of reinforcement, but I, I think we have to wipe the slate clean and get rid of all these words, because we're attached to these words like socialism and communism— When, as I've been saying about the Scandinavians, these ideas go back to the very beginning. They are familial. They are tribal. They are what we've always done. When we have shared interests, and we know that. When we feel a sense of commonality with the other people that we are working with, that we are around. And that's not paradise either, because we see where tribes fight. They are all of them. You know, they compete with other tribes. But the beauty of of something like Sweden is that you have, you know, and I I don't know that Sweden had tribes in the same way that Germany did, because, you know, Germany was very tribal and had a lot of tribal warfare up to a certain point. Uh, But, uh, you know, still, I I, I use tribe fairly generally. You know, a group of people who have shared interests and stick together and uh but you can see where at some point that even the different tribes came together, but those tribes had a lot more co- in common than the tribes that we have here in the u s, and a lot of it 's an illusion in my opinion, you know because as an American. I'm not excluding anybody. When I say I want to focus on the things about America that I like and I have a certain pride in my America, that's not white America, that's not black America, that's not limited to one thing. It's all of them. And I consider those people equally American. And they are part of what have shaped this. Every single group that lives in the U.S. who identifies as American, who can mark, you know, American on their you know, whatever, you know, they they can, they can check that box. I consider them equally American, and I would never disclude their perspective. But I also recognize that we operate on this assumption that we are different, that we are, we have different tribes, and everybody is guilty of this. Everybody is guilty of feeling this way. So the idea of, uh, you know, applying, because I mean, like, you look at the way that conservatives respond to welfare, and it's like, black people are getting welfare. It's like they have this idea that, oh, this other group, this other tribe is getting something at my expense and I'm not benefiting from it. Whereas, if you if you felt that those were your fellow Americans, if you saw, you know, and, and the idea that it's only black people getting welfare is, of course, ridiculous. But, but still, like, if they were able to see that and say, oh, the people getting welfare are Americans, too, and if we are both Americans, we are part of the same tribe, even though it's a large tribe, they are part of the same tribe, and what benefits them doesn't necessarily benefit me, but it strengthens them, and if it strengthens them, it strengthens the whole thing, and that does benefit me. And, you know, all is vanity. At some point, you do inevitably think about your own interests, as you should, in the same way that I talk about individuation, where you improve your own life as an individual so that you can benefit the collective more. They feed into each other. And what benefits the collective more, in turn, benefits you even more. And you can't escape that vanity, but you can use that vanity to be helpful. You know, you can use your vanity for a greater good, and it doesn't change the fact that there's vanity, because, as the Bible says, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a huge relief when you accept that. It's a huge relief when you accept that your ego is always there. And your ego is your self-interest. And you can't escape it. Because even if you've experienced an ego death, the second you acknowledge that you've had an ego death, your ego blows up like a giant balloon. It's even bigger than it was before the ego death in some cases. The second that you say, oh... This is ego death. That's an extremely egotistical thought. Cuz that's the funny thing about spiritual pursuits and this idea of minimizing or even removing the ego entirely is that then becomes the new goal. That then becomes this new rung on the ladder and it's like, "Oh, I've got I've climbed up to that rung." The rung of ego death. And what is that? What is climbing up to that rung? That's an extremely egotistical pursuit. So when you accept that ego is inevitable and you will have moments where you don't feel as egotistical, you may even experience ego death, but realizing that it'll come back, you know, your ego will come back, you realize that, okay, well, you know, it's okay to acknowledge that I benefit from something too. That shouldn't be my only goal, but you work on yourself so that you can improve the greater good and then the greater good in turn falls back on you in some sort of beneficial way but I wanted to get back into the idea of like when people make this distinction between socialism and communism it's just so funny to me because I hate it w- I hate to say that it's the same exact people but it is the same general group of people who will then turn around and say that us conservatism is 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 the same thing as fascism it's like don't you ever call socialism communism, they're different. And it's like, but, but Republicans are fascists. You know, it's like, how can you do that? You know, how, how, can you, how can you not see that you're doing the same thing that you're accusing other people of doing? And maybe I'm doing that here and I don't even realize it, but it's just such a strange thing. It's just strange blinder to not realize that you may be doing the very same thing. And uh, and then when you look at places, I mean, you look at communism, and I think communism is a great example of socialist programs, you know, applied on, a, on an authoritative level. You know, it's an authoritative system of socialism is kind of how I look at communism, whether that's right or wrong. I don't really care. That's how I see it. I don't care. That's how I see it. Um, and with that, though, we see where... We see where, like, even Russia is more homogenous than the U.S. It's a big fucking country. But Russia is and was, especially in the days of communism, a much more homogenous body. And, of course, you know when things are more homogenous than they are in the U.S., for example, because in the U.S. we see different skin color, different religions, different this and different that, and it's a lot more superficially obvious to us what the differences are between people. And those differences do exist, but it's really what you choose to do, how you choose to see those differences. And in a place like Russia, of course, like, to us, we have this tendency to be like, oh, they're all Russians, they're all Eastern European. There's no difference between somebody from Ukraine opposed to Moscow. And, of course, those people see a much wider chasm, because there are differences between Ukrainians and Russians. And to us, we don't really see those because we we aren't there. But, of course, there are differences. But that said, I don't think it's unfair to say that Russia is and was a much more homogenous place. And even then, their system failed. Even their attempts at authoritarian socialism failed. And maybe that's the problem, is that authoritarianism, which is why people want to make a distinction between socialism and communism. But we don't have a lot of examples of pure socialism without authoritarianism in government. And Sweden might be an example of that, but I don't think it's fair to call it socialism, because it predates ism. It's simply... The social, our social existence you know, you know That's what To be social is to interact with each other When we hear social We think, it, we think of it as like conversation Oh th- that's social And it's why people Don't know what antisocial means They think that it means Oh I like to stay inside and watch Netflix I'm antisocial and that means that you know i don't say hi back to people i don't like to talk on the phone i'm antisocial i don't like to answer the phone i like to i like to send minimal texts you know we have this idea that antisocial refers to like your conversational ability or your your ability or your interest in engaging people when if you're you know when it's used psychologically of course being antisocial means essentially criminal. It means you have no regard for the social system, the common interest of people. That's what antisocial is. You are not just an individual, you are an individual in opposition to the greater good. That's what antisocial means. So you can look at these things that we call socialism and say, no, they're simply social. To be social is to consider the greater good, is to consider the common interests that we share. So if you want to say social, I agree with that. But once we get into the ism, I feel like that's where, I don't know, I feel like that just gets into this shaky territory, and that's where we get very revisionist about it. We get very revisionist in the sense that we we look at these social behaviors that have always existed and are the reasons we exist today because we would not exist today if we didn't have common interests and we didn't get in touch with those common interests. But yet we have a tendency to look at that and say, well, don't you realize that's socialism, you stupid Republican? Hey, stupid Republican. Because, you know, that's a really good way of enacting socialism in the U.S. is to point your finger and belittle someone. That's a really good way. (laughs) You know, socialism... If you actually wanted socialism to become a reality in the U.S., you cannot scold someone. You cannot belittle someone. You cannot coerce someone into it. They have to recognize that common interest. You can lead them, you know, and that's a good skill to have. It's a good skill to learn how to lead people down the road, open the gate for somebody. You can open the gate for somebody, which is a really nice gesture. You can open the door. You can hold the door open for them. But you can't force them to go through. And that's what I see from people who are proponents of socialism in the U.S. It's, they're not holding the door open for anybody. They're not even opening it for anybody. They're saying, get in there. Don't you realize? You know, it's it's insanity. And it's totally counterintuitive. It is completely counterintuitive, the way that people are going about that. And even right now, when it should be more apparent than ever that we do need, and I, I hesitate to use the word need, but, you know, right now we do, we would all benefit right now from as much collective assistance as possible. We really would. Right now, when, when the economy has, this, this mythical economy is tanked overnight, when people are unemployed, when people are relying on other people, myself included, right now, I would love just, I would love to be helped right now and i would love to help other people but i would love to be helped right now i'm nervous i'm uncertain about my own situation i'm nervous i'm uncertain about other people's situations and i would love to be helped right now but i i know that before i can be truly helped i have to see where everybody has to see where we all where are i think the right way to put it is where where are cracks a line you know it's like a puzzle it's kind of an annoying analogy i wish i wish i could think of something cooler i wish i could think of something cooler but you know it's it's kind of annoying but it really is like a puzzle where we see we're all in these odd shapes and you know but we do fit together there is a harmony to be found you know there is a harmony of a you know a finished puzzle to be found but it's difficult because we don't have this deep shared history. We haven't been on this land for a long time. And we also took it from other people. You know, it doesn't help that we did colonize this place. It doesn't help that we brought slaves over here. None of this stuff <laughs> none of this stuff helps and it seems like a I feel like I'm minimizing all of this stuff by saying oh well, it doesn't help doesn't help that we had slaves. It doesn't help that we brutalized the native inhabitants. It, it really doesn't help. And it doesn't help that even among the people of, say, European-American ancestry, that even we are splitting hairs with each other. We can't even find common ground with the people who are the most like us. The person across the street, you know, if they voted the wrong way, even if they voted the right way, according to you if they have a slightly different opinion about something that you think is really important, bathrooms, gender, you know, one of these things, you know, it's like that's enough to separate you. And you no longer feel like you're on the same page as them. And if you don't feel like you're on the same page as them, there is a almost an antisocial impulse that kicks in. And we think of antisocial as a Diagnosable. Um, we think of it as a diagnosis, which, you know, it is. But it's also something... We all have antisocial tendencies, too. The second that you don't like somebody or you no longer feel like somebody is on your team, that is an antisocial impulse. So we have to understand that we all have that ability to be antisocial, and we are antisocial all the time. And there's probably something... It's, it's a tool. A tool, as my voice goes. Um, but, you know, that antisocial impulse is a tool in the same way that even the most extreme negative emotions are a tool. Hatred is a tool. You know, we don't feel... Like, like people have this idea that hatred, and that, that word has has become a brand. It's become a brand name for, like, racism and bigotry. But hatred is something we all feel. It means... You dislike someone very strongly to the point where you have no regard for their well-being, and you might apply that to an entire group, but you certainly have hatred for individuals. If you're a human being and you never feel any hatred for somebody else, well, good for you, but that's not most people's experience. It doesn't matter what you call it, hatred is a placeholder word, but it is a sensation or emotion that everybody feels, and if everybody feels it, why? What is the evolutionary benefit of hatred? Well, obviously, you know, we develop an aversion to certain things for our own survival, so in that way, hatred is a a defense mechanism, and people often use it offensively, and I think that's the problem. If you see hatred as a tool, or you don't even have to use the word hatred since that word has been so, you know, distorted. It, it has come to mean a very specific thing. You know, but if you see it as simply a tool, it's a tool for your own defense It's rather than offense. And a lot of people use hatred offensively, and not just the bigots, not just the, the so-called racists, it's also just, I mean... I know a lot of liberal people. Most of, most of my friends, most of the people I know and love firmly align with the left. And they, some of them, not, not most of them maybe, but some of them are extremely hateful. And right now, I, I see it. They're seething, you know. And then when they do speak, it's just hatred toward Republicans, toward rich people. Whoever it is comes out. This hatred comes out, and hatred is a sensation. It's not just a sensation that you feel. It is something that you sense in others, and I feel like I'm an expert at sensing it. I can tell you. If you ever want to know if you're being hateful, express yourself to me, and I have a tolerance for hate, and I've certainly felt hatred myself, which is why I I feel like I can recognize it so well. But if if you're ever concerned about feeling hateful, Maybe I'm feeling hateful. Let me ask Eric. Maybe that'll be my consulting service. Maybe that's how I will survive. Maybe that's how I will uh, make a living in the future is bring your hatred to me. It, will, it, it won't enter me, but I, will, I can still process it without it poisoning me, and I will let you know if you are being hateful. You know, And the thing is, though, about the people who are actual full-blown bigots and, and racists and that kind of thing, they know they're being hateful, but they've embraced it. And they, f- they feel they've painted themselves into a corner, but they also feel that other people have painted them into a corner. And so they're defensive, but then they turn that into an offense. But I can see where even people who are against the quote-unquote brand, or, or uh, they're against the brand of quote-unquote hatred... Behave in a very hateful way on a regular basis to the point where I would actually say, I don't want to call you a hateful person because I don't want to put you in that box because that feels hateful of me. It's, I, w- I would feel hateful to call somebody else a hateful person. But you express hatred a lot and you, know, and, and you don't recognize it because you think that that word only means one thing. But you shouldn't be, in the same way that you shouldn't be afraid of just negativity in general, you shouldn't be afraid of sadness or grief because these have a function, you shouldn't be afraid of hatred, you should just know that it is a tool and human beings have used it to evolve, to survive, and so you can use it very sparingly. You can use it only when you really need it. I mean, there are times, I do not not so much lately, but there are times where like, I'm lifting weights or I'm running and I might be listening to certain music and I just think, I kind of get into that mode, I kind of get into that me-against-the-world mode, and that gives me an edge for this activity. And it's not that I'm thinking any negative thoughts about a specific person, but I kind of, there is something almost hateful about it, but yet I'm doing something that's very constructive for myself. So what is that? Well, I think it's making use of a certain tool that we have. And, you know, hatred and anger, you know, you can see where those things are, are... very close together. They're not necessarily the same thing because I think hatred tends to be sustained anger. You can get angry in response to something, but hate is a sustained form of anger. And it might not be because, I mean, you can be angry. We, we tend to think of anger as something explosive where it's out loud and it's, it's not just out loud, it's loud. But the reality is, you can be quietly angry. And I know a lot about that too. I've, you know, I was talking to a friend, my friend Cameron last night, and I was just telling him some stories about times where I just kind of like boiled over and I yelled at people or, you know, and alcohol was involved in, you know, a few of the stories, but not all of them, certainly not all of them, like stories where I was, I behaved, I I was angry, I, I was belligerent, and I don't feel like that'll never happen again, but it was a different time in my life where that was much more, that sort of reaction was much closer to the surface at any given time. But uh, more often than not, it, it happened pretty rarely, though. When you when I look at my life, it was very rare that I boiled over and actually expressed anger at somebody in my life, although it did happen. But I, that's not to say I wasn't angry. Just because I didn't have explosive anger and for that matter, just because I don't have explosive anger now, doesn't mean there, there isn't a cold anger. And that cold anger can very easily become hatred. Because I see hatred as a sustained form of hum- uh, humor, uh, as a sustained form of anger. And humor is, I mean, I, I didn't mean to say humor there, but humor is a form of that too, where, you know, as somebody who does say things that are offensive sometimes... As someone whose sense of humor does veer into uncomfortable territory, maybe. You know, it just naturally does. I'm not trying to be edgy, I'm not trying to be offensive necessarily, but it just veers there occasionally. And that's a great example of the tool. You can use those emotions and you can channel them through the, the solvent, the universal solvent that is humor. But that's not you can't rest on that because that can easily be hateful too that can easily be no different than just screaming at somebody. Making a hateful joke can be the same thing as that, so you have to be careful about that. But that doesn't mean that you should censor yourself, or that doesn't mean that that there are laws and rules surrounding what's funny and what's not, because it's really up to you and and up to the people you're talking to, really. Um... But I think you have to see these these emotions as a tool, and it's, it's where I have a real disconnect from some new-agey sort of thought, where there's this tendency to reject negative thinking or negative people. Surround yourself with positive people. You should only be around positive people. It's like, well, good luck with that. You know, good luck being around only positive people. Good luck in your cave. Good luck with that, because... You're going to experience that and if you don't shut it out of your life completely and if you keep certain people in your life and you recognize the good that they bring. If someone brings your life no—if somebody gives you no benefit, they probably shouldn't be in your life. But I know people who bitch and complain a lot and I might do that myself. But there is a greater good to the relationship and I know when to just let their—I know when just to let them vent I know, and I know how to let that wash over me without getting into my cracks. And you can make all kinds of jokes about that. Like, without getting into my crack, I don't know, stupid, really stupid. Um, uh, but you have to learn how to do that. That's, I think that's the, the difficulty, where if you're in a very raw and sensitive state, somebody else's negativity is going to get inside of you. It's not just going to wash over you. It is going to get into your cracks, because you have them. And it's not, and and you'll and you'll never not have them. You know, you'll always have those cracks, but you do learn just to let it wash over you, and uh, that's that's an important part of this. And I think that, and to, just to go back, I know I've been this is a spiral here again, but you know, it does go back to, you know, finding the common interests with your fellow Americans, let's focus on that, let's get away from Scandinavia, where I, you know, don't really know, I don't have any idea firsthand what it's like to live there, and so I I really am speaking out of my zone when I talk about Scandinavia, and I am an outsider to that, even though I have that blood, even though I have Scandinavian blood, and I have relatives living there right now, friends there right now, and I have spoken to them about this stuff, but, you know, despite that, you know, it's like thinking about just Americans and recognizing that the things that you don't like about your fellow Americans, in the same way that you might have a friend, and they are excessively negative sometimes, and sometimes it is a little bit of a, a trial to go through. Sometimes it is a little bit of a test where you're just like, ooh, I want to get mad at them for being mad about something, but it has nothing to do with me. And thats I think that's an important thing. If you If you know somebody and they're always like, antagonistic toward you, well, that's a pretty good sign that you need to step away. You don't need that person in your life if they're always antagonizing you. And sometimes we butt heads, but, you know, if they're always kind of lunging at you, you don't want that. But if they're just negative about the world and life in general, you know, I think you can just let that wash over you. And it's not just your friends, though. I think you have to understand that it's the same thing with your fellow Americans. And when I do, when, you are know, talking about how I see people who are, would consider themselves anti-hate. They're like, ban hate speech. I'm a liberal and hatred just isn't a part of my life. Except when I, I hear a, a Republican Karen talk. And then, uh, you know, it's like, you can let that wash over you too because you don't want to get mad at the person who is mad. You don't want to hate the person who is hating because then you're playing the same game as them. Then you're revolving around them. Resist not evil yet again. You don't want to you don't want to attach yourself to that by participating in that unless you want to play the game. And if you want to play that game, then go ahead, but I don't. I don't want to play the game where I fight fire with fire. I don't want to play the game where I respond to hatred with more hate. I just don't want to do it. Especially if I'm only feeling mad because they're mad. You know, because we have a tendency to do that, where it's we respond to an emotion with an equal emotion, and it's just, I don't want to do that. It hasn't helped me so far and I know it won't help me in the future. So I don't want to do that. So when you see a fellow American doing something that you don't like, saying something that you don't like, I would recommend letting it wash over you. Just let it wash over you. In the same way that when you're reading a book, sometimes you just don't absorb what you're reading, and it's kind of frustrating because you're like, "Uh," like, I want to... I want to absorb this. I want to remember this. I want to. I want to be in this story. But sometimes you just can't do it. You can use that to your benefit with people, where sometimes people are talking and you're there. You can't get away from them. Maybe there's somebody who's just in your life and they're there to stay. But you let what they're saying just kind of wash over you. You kind of unfocus. And maybe this is where meditation helps. And I won't get into meditation today. But you know, maybe this is where being able to somehow focus and unfocus at the same time, because that is the interesting thing about meditation, is people always say that you focus, you focus your mind, and that is very much what you do, but in focusing your mind, everything unfocuses, and I feel like it's the same thing when you're dealing with somebody who is difficult, and especially when it's someone you don't know, because, you know, I'll, you know, I'll hop on social media and I'll see somebody I know or don't know, for that matter, say something that I just completely disagree with and not only disagree with, but they're expressing it in extremely hostile terms. And I and I see where it's it's a problem. And my gut response is to react the same way that my 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 gut reaction is to to meet them where they're at. To be like, oh, look at them being nasty. Well, I'm going to think a nasty thought about them for thinking a nasty thought. And then you can see where you've attached yourself to that. You're revolving around that planet, which isn't what you want to do. And I do think you can train your mind to not do that. You can train your mind to not react, or if you do react, to, to catch it at its roots. You know, you don't let the weed grow you don't let that marijuana plant grow. You chop it the second you see it start to sprout, which is what we should do with all marijuana plants. Um, no, of course not. Of course not. Um, but, uh, you know, you just, you just have to chop it at its roots, and that will help you. You will become more Social. Not, it won't necessarily, I mean, it'll improve your social skills for sure, so on an immediate direct level, it actually will improve your social skills, but it will make you more social. You will start to, you will not disclude them from your America. When you see somebody express themselves a certain way, you will not push them out of your tribe. You will say, oh, that is a member of my tribe, I don't like how they're expressing themselves, but I'm not going to push them away because we do have common interests. We do have a shared goal, and what's good for them is ultimately good for me, and that's good for the whole. And that's the beauty as well as the frustrating side of a tribe. Because the beauty of a tribe is that you will protect a member of your tribe under just about any circumstance, especially if it involves another tribe. If an, if a member of another tribe says that a member of your tribe did something wrong, you will defend them simply for the sake the sake uh, that you are on the same team, simply for the reason that you are on the same team. The frustrating thing is you will do exactly that too. (laughs) So there's this tendency to be like, oh, it's beautiful that you have someone's back and you have, because you have these common interests, you're part of the same family, the same tribe. The frustrating thing is that you will defend somebody who might not deserve being defended, or you might defend somebody who is in the wrong because they are part of your tribe. So the same thing that makes the tribal mindset beautiful is the same thing that makes it so frustrating and difficult and scary even. Uh, So that's that's a funny aspect of it. But I think you should start to think less in terms of socialism and more in terms of simply, what is social? What makes me interact with the whole in a more harmonious way without giving up who I am? Without giving up the things that I like about myself that do make me unique, and not being unique for the sake of rebelling or just to be different. But what are the things that, you know, where can, you know, looking, looking for that harmony. Because when you're in harmony with your tribe, you know, your tribe could potentially find harmony with other tribes. And that's why we have the modern nations we do. The idea that all of these different groups of people would all call themselves Swedes or Germans or Americans, the idea of that happening hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, was inconceivable to to two tribes. The idea of two tribes fighting each other, you know, eons ago, the idea that they would someday be part of one nation together was probably inconceivable to them. And I think the same is true now. But we already have a leg up. We already have an advantage. And that's that we do have this common identity. We do have this word American. And somebody might hear me talk about, you know, this how I, I, like, willingly step into this American identity. I talk all, I'm like, oh, your job doesn't define you. Your interests don't define you. Your name doesn't define you, you know. Let go of your identity. Let go of your identity and embrace the nothingness you came from and will enter again someday. You will be nothing, you, you were nothing, and you will become nothing. So embrace the nothing that is here right now and don't hold on to your identities, in the same way that I always say that shit, and I might sound hypocritical, and I'm a total hypocrite, and, and a contradiction, and all kinds of things. Uh, but in the same way that I might sound like a hypocrite or a contradiction, when I say, embrace your American identity. It's something that, it's just, you're, you're not going to escape that in this lifetime. You're, gonna, you're, you're always going to be a citizen, in the same way that you're not going to escape your name. You need a name. You were given a name. It was fairly arbitrary. Your parents wanted to name you after your great-great-great-grandfather. Your parents wanted to name you after uh, Bella uh, from Twilight. Whatever it is, your name was fairly arbitrary. Uh, I mean, I I went to college with this kid named Melvin, and it was spelled M-E-L-V-E-N. M-E-L-V-E-N, and he explained it to the class, and he was definitely on the spectrum he drew anime he had a book that was like a like a very thin book that was how to draw anime girls and he would sit there in class and he would draw the same template of an anime girl from the shoulders up but with a different hairstyle and he would do this over and over again all through class but point being he explained to the class the first day when we went around the room introducing ourselves he said my name's melvin and he spelled it out because who's nobody's ever seen that spelling of melvin and he said, uh, "My name is Melvin because I'm named, Each letter of my name is is from a different family member. So you know, one family member's name started with M, another one E, another one L. I guess they didn't have an I. Nobody in that family, no, nobody in that family's name started with the letter I. So, you know, as a result, M E L V E N. So you can see where names are silly. Names are placeholders. Yet I wholly identify with the name Eric." I've been responding to this sound my entire life, and that fact alone gives that name meaning to me. And I can't escape it. I can change my name, but people who change their names are freaking annoying. (laughs) How's that for hate? I hate people who change their names. But really, like, there is this part of me that's always a little annoyed when someone changes their name. I'm just like, what are you trying to do? Cheat code, back to cheat codes. That's a cheat code if I've ever heard of one. Changing your name. Oh, you think you're different now, huh? You think you're a whole different person now because you changed your name. Too bad everybody still knows that your old name is you. Kind of like, it's the same thing as someone who leaves America in a big huff. And I talk about that a lot, like where if you move to another country, oh, well, good luck not feeling like an American when you live in a village in uh, Africa. Not that people move there. That'd be awesome. You know, people are always like, I'm going to move to Canada. I'm going to move to a remote village in Africa. How come nobody does that? They probably do. But even if you move to Canada, I mean, Canada is a great example, or even if you move to Canada, you're going to make yourself even more American. You're going to contrast even more with your surroundings. Oh, you don't feel like an American while you're living in America because you don't like the president. You don't identify with your American citizenship while you're living in America because you hate Donald Trump. Well, good luck feeling like less of an American when you go to a, another country where everybody's going to call you the nickname, the American. You know, Everybody's going to call you that and, and say, oh, uh, whatever. I've talked about that a lot. But the reason why I think I harp on, like, you know, rather than trying to remove yourself from this American identity, even though it is arbitrary, you you just happen to be born here, but it is one that you're going to have a hard time escaping. I feel like those are two identities that you just can't really escape. Your name and the country in which you were born. Those are two identities that, yeah, you could... You'd basically have to turn that into your life's purpose if you want to escape those two things. Your life would have to revolve around just constantly running away from your name and your country of birth. And I don't think you would ever actually succeed. So you might as well embrace it in a positive way. You might as well find the good. You might as well find the common interests. You might as well become social and embrace that social side and that doesn't mean chatting with everybody doesn't mean being friends with your neighbors even but understanding that you have shared interests and i think neighborhood is a, a very great example of this where that used to be a tribe that used to be a community and now it doesn't i, I know one, like one of my neighbors and it's not because i i reject them it's not because i avoid them i just i mean to be fair like i know the lady across the street and I kind of know the people next door. But in my last house, I lived next door to this elderly... They weren't elderly, they were older. They were senior citizens, but uh, maybe that is elderly. But I lived next to them for seven and a half years, and I tried to say hi to them at the mailboxes a couple times, and they didn't say shit back to me. And I could have turned around and been hateful in response, and at that time, I kind of did feel that way. But at the same time, I would have helped them if they needed it. But it was just weird. I mean, that kind of tells you that, like, that's not very social of them. That's not very directly social in the sense that when you say hi to somebody, you should at least say hi back if they're your neighbor. That's insane. That, that is insane to not say hi back to your neighbor when they say hi. You don't have to talk to them. You don't have to be friends with them. But just say hi. Acknowledge that you live there. It's ridiculous. There's a level of intimacy to that. But we live in a time where you don't even know the people in your neighborhood. And because you don't know them, you don't even feel like you're on the same team. It takes some kind of... You know, there was a situation here where these guys were repeated... There's a mailbox bank, kind of like a payphone bank, which means like all the mailboxes are together and you have to have a key and you, you unlock your individual mailbox. And uh, these guys were breaking into the the mailbox bank with a crowbar like every weekend. This went on so the the community the community had to buy a uh, like a really like a a fortified mailbox that can't be broken into and people came together for that and pitched in. but it took it took an outsider coming in and stealing everybody's mail. but it shouldn't have to come to that to recognize your common interest. It shouldn't have to come to that. Because we're here all the time, no matter what, whether there's an outsider coming in and messing with us or not. We are in this neighborhood all the time. And I think, you know, people, you know, people do look out for each other. It's not that we're in some total. It's not not like we're in some total post-apocalypse. where We're all fighting for the last breadcrumb. But we do operate that way a lot. And we operate that way even when things are going extremely well. So now that things are turned upside down a little bit, it's a great chance to look at, you know, what are you doing? How social are you? No, not how many parties you go to, not how many names are in your phone book. You know, how social are you? How oriented are you toward the greater good? How harmonized are you with what it means to be a human being, with what it means to be an American with what it means to be somebody who lives in your city or town, who lives in your neighborhood. There's a lot of room for improvement for me. I'll tell you that much. I could be a lot more social, but you can't force it either. And that's why I try to see what I can do for myself so that in turn I can then be a stronger person for the community that I am in and not so that I can be super involved. I don't want to be super involved. I'm not running for city hall yet. I'm not running for City Hall quite yet. That day is going to come, but not yet. Uh, But, you know, get rid of socialism. Don't revise history and say that the family unit is socialism. Don't revise history and say that the Scandinavian programs that are in place today that developed in the 1700s, because, I mean, let's get back to the book I was reading. In the 1700s, some of... The early, the earliest forms of what we now call socialized healthcare in Scandinavia began in the 1700s when plague and illness hit Scandinavia. That's why they have a, a, a firm collectivist mindset when it comes to healthcare, social healthcare. Let's not say socialized. Let's not say socialist. They have a social, a pro-social attitude toward healthcare, and let's not get distracted with political ideology, with, with, let's not get twisted up about that. In the 1700s, there were no socialist countries. There was no communist manifesto. So let's not revise history and say that Scandinavia is an example of socialism in practice. Maybe there are even Scandinavians who call it that. There probably are. But that word is very divisive, and so we should look at what words do we use that are extremely divisive, a lot of them. We use a lot of words that are almost intentionally divisive. I feel like there are some things we do that are intentionally divisive because a lot of our identity is based on who we are not. And we define ourselves based on who we are not by making other people the other. Even just calling them other people. Other people. You can communicate the same thing by just saying people. Why say other people? You know, but we have this tendency to other. We have this tendency to other. To other people. We make them others. We use other. Uh, we, other almost becomes a verb. And I certainly do it. We make distinction. We emphasize the cracks. And those cracks are there. There is distinction. We all are different pieces of the puzzle with weird shapes. And when you look at the puzzle as a whole, you can still see the cracks around each puzzle piece. But they do fit together. They do form a whole. And in that way, puzzles are social. Is this a social puzzle? Well, if the pieces fit together, then yes. In some places, it's easier for the pieces to fit together. In Sweden, it's easier for the pieces of the puzzle to fit together. They have a much deeper shared history. It is a more racially and ethnically homogenous country. And this isn't me saying that we need to be more racially and ethnically homogenous in the U.S. It's not me saying that, but we have what we have to work with, and they have what they have to work with. Sweden has pieces of the puzzle that fit together more naturally. And they've been shaped together over time. So, you know, it's a diff- it, it's, you can't compare our country to their country. They're, the pieces of their puzzle fit together much more easily and naturally. And we have to figure out where things fit together here. And that's difficult. But we have to acknowledge that it's possible. And we can acknowledge that possibility by being a little more social and not socialist. Because social is what a family unit does when they work together. And so you have to look at how the smallest possible component harmonizes. And you can find examples of families that don't harmonize. You can find examples of dysfunctional families. But there are far more stories about families who understand some sort of basic harmony. And that's beautiful. But we can apply that. We can start there in the same way that you can start as an individual and you can work upward and outward, you can do that with a family as well, where you can start with the family unit, then work up to the clan, then work up to the tribe, then work up to the you know the city, the community, the state. You can work up. And it is up. It is ascendant. It will ultimately go to a good place, a higher place, because there is nothing higher than harmony. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave.